Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Will you read with me Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattithiah, Shemar, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Marseiah, and on the right hand where there was Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed down their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelitah, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So this Sunday we are carrying on our Bring Out the Book series and we are in Nehemiah chapter 8 and our passion behind this series, the reason why we are walking through this Lenten series this year is it because our desire as a church is to produce Christians, men and women who are Bible reading Bible-loving, Bible-memorising, Bible-obeying Christians. Our mission is to make kingdom-minded disciples and the disciples that we see being produced through Trinity Church London are those who love the Word of God. 
We see men and women like Ezra here in the centre of this moment who is reading and teaching from the Bible. We're told of Ezra this. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. May there be Ezra's, men and women of influence who will know, read, teach and do this book in London. And our passion is that we as a congregation would grow in our hunger and our responsiveness to the word. Like this congregation that gathered in Jerusalem some 2,400 years ago. Because we read this and this is where the title of our series, Bring Out the Book, comes from. From Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 2. It says this, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Sorry, I've missed a whole passage in verse one. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. In the NIV, it says to bring the book out. And this is our passion. And this congregation were hungry for the word. We're told this. He read from it, the Bible facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. If you're a preacher, this is a preacher's dream. This is a congregation's nightmare, but a preacher's dream. Early morning till midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive. That there is this spiritual renewal that was going on in this moment. And our prayer and our passion is that we would follow in their spiritual wake. And something of the passion of Ezra and this congregation would be instilled in us. And these sermons really are our spiritual appetizers for us with the desire and the prayer that we might go from this place. We might go into our weeks with a renewed passion to read, study, memorize, obey more of the Bible. And let me just say this, if you're not a Christian and you're watching in, firstly, thanks so much. We believe that Jesus is for all peoples and his message and his life and his death and his resurrection are life-giving for everybody who would believe. So thank you, firstly. But let me say this. I don't know how you feel about this book. When I was like 16 years old, I felt very ambivalent. I grew up in church, but this book felt irrelevant to my life and dull and dreary. Whether you feel like the Bible is ambivalent or it's just an outrageous uh, book that has got traditional values that just don't fit in our day, can I ask you this very simple thing? Would you read it for yourself? Would you read one, a whole book, a gospel, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John? Would you read one of the gospels from beginning to end so that you have got the data in your own hands to make up your own mind? This book purports to contain the meaning of life. At the very least, it would be sensible, I would suggest, to read it for yourself. Two billion plus people say this book has supernatural power and helps them in their everyday life. Is there, if there is help to be had, if there is help to be had, I think it would be sensible at the very least to read it. So let me just encourage you to read some of this book, not just a verse here and there, but one of the books within this library of books and read it from beginning to end. And maybe I dare you ask this, uh, pray this prayer, Lord, if you are real, would you reveal yourself to me? Personally, I'm still stunned that uh, me as a 17-year-old who read this Bible for the first time properly, that I'm now here some 17 years later actually teaching from it. I'm still amazed at this, but God met me through this book. And this, this moment here that we have is, a, is really one of the last 
spiritual highs and spiritual moments that God's people have before we get to the life of Jesus. Here, 400 years before Jesus comes, there is this great spiritual awakening that happens in Jerusalem. Up to this point in chapter 7 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has been concerned with rebuilding the city. It had been destroyed by a foreign nation and they are rebuilding the walls and the gates so they can live secure and they can repopulate and rebuild the city. And yet chapter 7 could be the end, but it's not because there is a spiritual need that the people have, not just for the infrastructure of the city to be rebuilt, but for their souls to be rebuilt, their souls to be restored. And for us, this feels so timely and prophetic because we are at a stage now where there is so much talk about rebuilding London, the infrastructure, the repopulation, the refinancing of all that's happening, of of what is it going to be like for the, the, the capital of our nation in the years to come. And even for us as a church, there's a lot of time and thinking going into moving back to Sundays, gatherings, community groups, programs, outreach, alphas, all of these things which are hugely exciting. But this infrastructure is nothing unless our souls are restored. And this is what we have in this moment. Nehemiah 8 is a breaking forth of a spiritual revival. There is a growing hunger that comes in here. And really what I want to do is is put this moment before us as a model of what a soul being spiritually revived looks like. Because I would suggest a lot of us right now don't feel at our spiritual best. We've had a year of being quietly, slowly, sometimes unknowingly battered by news and events and lack of events and lack of encouragement and a lot of us are feeling depleted spiritually right now what we need more than infrastructure is our souls to be restored and this gives us a model of what it can look like we need a plausibility structure for what is it gonna be like when my soul receives spiritual energy If you want to inspire young people, you need to give them role models. This is what your life could look like. Look at so-and-so, look at so-and-so, look at X, look at Y. This is, and it helps them reframe their future. I want to reframe your future and what it could look like having a soul revived. And the main thing at ground zero that we have to say is that it revolves around this book. This whole chapter revolves around the Bible. It revolves around the Word of God and a spiritually revived soul is a soul that is hungry for the Bible. There is a direct correlation between spiritual zeal and a hunger for the Bible. It is incongruous to say I am spiritually passionate and yet don't like reading the Bible. That spiritual passion is something of emotion, something of the flesh, if it is not grounded and centred towards the Bible. And this is what we have right here in this scene, where the Bible is brought out by Ezra, read and taught for half a day in the Middle Eastern sun. So I want to lay out seven things that I've just noticed. That's all I've done. Yesterday I sat down and I noticed seven marks of a spiritual revival from this passage, and I want to give them to us really as kindling, that God may use this and pour his Holy Spirit into your soul and bring a warming and a reviving and a a new interest and inclination towards this book. Very simple, seven things, I'm going to pray and we're done. 
I've just got to try and make these seven points short. That's the issue. The first thing is this. And we're thinking about what does it look like for my future self to be living in a spiritually revived state, full of God. Firstly, this, there is preparation involved. Verse four, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform very high said that they had made for the purpose. So they had put time and effort into preparing for this moment. This wasn't them one day waking up thinking, do you know what? I actually am quite interested in the Bible today. I wonder what Ezra's got to say from the, from the word of God. No, this was a prepared moment. They had thought and planned this out. They had prepared something so that Ezra could read from the scriptures and they had gathered around at the same time in the same moment. It was preparation. If you want a revived soul, it is gonna require planning with your devotions, preparation. Where are you gonna read the Bible when you're alone? How, what, what, what music are you gonna to listen to? Where's your journal? Where's your pen? How are you gonna focus your thoughts? All of these needs, pre-thought as we gather together as a community our diaries sundays saturday nights after church it, it requires a little bit of preparation and planning if we are just left as our culture is wont to do if i am just left to my emotions if i sit around waiting week on week month on month year on year waiting for some spiritual interest to develop in my soul for the bible who knows when i will ever get there and it will only be fleeting at best sustained spiritual passion happens through preparation they prepared this wooden platform for the purpose of hearing the word of god secondly this there is respect verse 5 says this ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and as he opened it all the people stood just imagine this huge thousands of people standing to attention we stand when someone walks into a room out of respect for them if someone who is uh, worthy of our respect comes in and we don't stand it's awkward because if someone walks in they deserve respect you stand even for a moment to acknowledge them to welcome them and then you sit down again Standing is a sign of respect. And here in this moment, the people of God stand as they get addressed by God himself, recognising that they are being addressed by someone who is senior to them, someone who is greater than they are, someone who is their creator. And they stand before God. We don't do this as a church very often. I'm suggesting that we might do this going forward because what we do with our body has an implication and an impact on our soul. So next Sunday when we gather in this place, in the Coin Street Centre, we're going to stand when the scriptures are read. We may not do it every Sunday, but we're going to acknowledge this and we're going to respect God and what he says to us. So the, 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 the second thing is respect. The third thing is this, there is faith verse 6 Ezra blessed the Lord the great God and all the people answered amen amen and lifting up their hands so you've got to imagine this Ezra is reading at the front and thousands of people whether they feel like it or not lift up their hands as they hear God address them what is this lifting up of hands 
Like I know, and I've had people tell me this, accuse me and the church of this, of basically people putting up their hands is like spiritual posing. It's like being a human peacock, just waving to other people. Like, look at me, look how spiritual I am. Look how wonderful I am in church. Like it's a kind of spiritual pose, like I'm showing off. But when you read the scriptures, the lifting of hands in public worship is not showing off. And it's not because I feel like it. It's not because I've got some special emotion that other people don't have. I lift up my hands because I am needy for God and his help in my life. I lift up my hands because I am believing God that he is going to help me and give me what I want. It's the expression of a soul that is looking to God. If you've got little kids or had little kids or if you were a little kid you will know that little kids spend a lot of time with their hands in the air i remember particularly with kiki you know she would often if she was excited she would run and she'd have her hands in the air if she wanted to cuddle she'd run to us and have her hands in the air if she'd hurt herself she'd have her hands in the air and she would come to us wanting us why she wanted us to pick her up and help her give her what she needs arms in the air is an expression of that I want to suggest, Trinity, we want to be a church that has our hands in the air regularly. In your devotional space, on a Sunday as we gather, this is not spiritual posing, this is me saying the opposite, I need God. Maybe I don't feel you, God, and I need you, hence I lift up my hands. And we come to the scriptures expectantly in faith that when I open the pages of this book, I am going to get help. I'm going to receive from God. There's going to be mercy that's going to flow into my soul. I am not reading the Bible so that I can impress God. I'm reading the Bible spiritually and maybe physically with my hands in the air saying, Lord, I need you in this moment. Please come and meet me. So that's the third thing. We come with faith hands in the air the fourth thing is we come worshiping carrying on in verse six lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the lord with their faces to the ground they bowed they physically bowed in the dust before god and this is them worshiping because they were encountering god himself as the pages of these words are read we are being addressed by the creator himself and therefore we worship at his feet and we worship in his presence and we bow down submitting to everything that he says saying all that you say is true all that you say is life-giving all that you say is good for me and my home and my family and my city and the nations and I respond to you and I want to just throw out a challenge to you or an invitation challenge if you like a challenge an invitation if you like a kind of a, a softer invite why not bow before you read the bible or even while you read the bible you know if you've got a space in your home physically bow you might say i don't i don't feel like bowing or maybe that's the right time to bow and you posture your heart as you posture your body before God in worship and submission you say to God as you bow on the ground and you get on your knees you say to him you are greater than I and I am lesser would you speak to me I will worship I will listen I will do I will submit why don't you try it for seven days bow for five minutes just get on your knees read the bible on your knees for five minutes if your knees would allow it it's one of my prayers lord give me knees that can bow when i'm 75 and then just read and read from that posture a spiritually revived soul 
Fifthly, and quickly, there is help. You get all these great names, and then in verse 8 we read this, they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. A soul that is dull to the word of God will read something and not understand it and not feel like I've got to go any further, shut the book and move on with their day. But a soul that is spiritually alive, that feels the, the, the energy that's coming from the book, that sees this as beautiful with, with crystal clarity, beginning to think, I, I, I want more of this. That kind of soul says, I need help. And if I don't understand something, I'm going to ask for help and I'm going to receive from others. I'm going to do this together. I'm going to get to group. I'm going to get to church. I'm going to get into a book. I'm going to ask someone a question. I'm going to text someone who seems to know the Bible well. What do you think of this passage? If you read something in the morning and you're not sure, throw it out to your community group. Ask them a question. Say, I read this. I'm not sure what it means. What do you think? Has anyone got any help with me on this? If there's a doctrine, get help. That is a spiritually revived soul. That is a sign, not of weakness, not of shame. I don't understand the Bible. That's a sign of revival happening in your soul that you are reaching out and trying to get more help to get clarity in the book. Sixthly, this, there is weeping. Look at this in verse nine. Nehemiah, uh, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to each other, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not weep or mourn. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now this seems super strange to us because like, this is supposed to be a moment of spiritual revival and we read about joy and energy. How could weeping be involved in this? Surely this isn't like good for your self-worth. This isn't good for your, your sense of yourself. But you're left weeping after you read the Bible. What is happening here? The Bible for us acts like a mirror to who we really are. It acts like a mirror, not just to my external self, but to my internal self. The only mirror that can give me a true sense of who I am in my soul. And what God's people were confronted with in this moment is that they were not as good as they thought they were in that moment. They were confronted with continual failure before God. They were confronted with Adam and Eve's sin deliberately willfully walking away from God Cain's anger and murder Noah's drunkenness Abraham mistreating his wife multiple times their man of faith they were confronted with the golden calf they were, they were confronted with their grumbling even in the face of the grace of God they were confronted with themselves and the continual failure to live up to their redemptive potential in God they were confronted with their sin and suddenly weeping broke out and this isn't weeping of like condemnation and darkness and confusion there can be moments there are a lot of the time our weeping is down to confusion uncertainty pride ego confusion as to what's happening in our lives and we end up emotional and crying this is not that this is exactly the opposite this is weeping because of spiritual clarity that for the first time they saw themselves as they really were. Their identity was crystal clear, not confused, and they were broken by the knowledge. About five, six years ago, I started developing um, chest infections, kind of not out of the blue, because I'd had issues with bronchitis and stuff in the past, but this was like chest infection after chest infection, and 18 months maybe of one after the other, antibiotics, antibiotics. And the, the weird thing happened is that I got very used to living with being subpar, like feeling gray, not sleeping, 
coughing, feeling tight-chested, no energy. I'd take antibiotics and then take paracetamol. I'd been back to the GP a few times and uh, kind of nothing changed. And what happened was, is that I began to get used to feeling subpar. <laughs> After like a year, 18 months, I got used to like just operating with every day being this total trudge and like difficulty just to get through meetings in the day and then collapsing and then struggling in the morning. Got used to this moment until one Easter day, did a church service, felt so awful, then struggled, wasn't sleeping at all. So like 4 a.m. finally decided I've got to get myself to A&E because I was coughing up weird stuff at that point. Anyway, sat there in front of the doctor, got wished straight through to the wards. And after like an hour, they said, oh, uh, you've got pneumonia. And my response was I went to the toilet. I mean, that wasn't what I needed to say. <laughs> after like five, 10 minutes of listening to this, I, went, I just burst into tears. Why? Because I'd spent a year thinking this was how I'm going to be now. This, I've got used to living subpar, but there was a reason that I had not understood. I had pneumonia and suddenly clarity came and those tears were tears of crystal clear clarity and hope because if I am diagnosed correctly, I can get out of this place. And so many of us are living spiritually and emotionally subpar lives and we are misdiagnosing the issue, thinking it's because of something that happened when I was raised or, you know, like I'm, I haven't been treated well, I haven't been input in it, I haven't had the chances or the opportunities, when actually the true diagnosis is that we have failed before God, we have sinned before him, we have fallen short of his glory, we need that diagnosis. And if we can be brave enough to confront maybe our fears about who we really are and come before God and actually gain spiritual clarity in the mirror of his word, we may end up weeping. There may be tears. It's a good sign. And as we come to that place of brokenness and weeping, there is the place that resurrection power can be found. There is the doorway and the gateway into hope, into a new life, into spiritual vitality, into spiritual health. If you find yourself confronted by something that makes you weep, don't move on from that place. Stick with the Bible in front of your eyes and God in your heart and allow him to bring clarity. It may be painful to deal with, but as you move through that pain, you will find hope on the other side. And that's where we get to with this last point. The final note of this story is not weeping. That's not the end of the Christian story. And that's not the goal to leave us all crushed. Hey, hey see you later, guys. Uh, you can leave and go home now crushed and weeping. No, the goal of all of this is joy. So we get this. Good pastors, Nehemiah and Ezra, he says, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who's nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The final note of this story is joy. And as we keep reading through the scriptures, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading, we find that the final note of our story is joy. The afterglow of our life is not weeping and pain and anxiety, but unbounded, unfettered, pure, everlasting joy that will colour the whole of the, your life and all the memories of your life so that when we one day get to glory and we look back on our life, the overriding memory will be joy as we realise all that God had done for us and provided for us.
that these people were filled with joy and this joy is marked by food. He says this, all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and to make great rejoicing. I'm thinking a lot at the moment about great rejoicing. Tora and I have got this brand new dining table, as big as we could think to get it into our living room space. And we are thinking a lot about making great rejoicing with you guys. We're gonna lay this table full of food. Because when we read the Bible, what we find is that diagnosing our sin is not the final issue. Presenting the provision of a saviour is the final note that is given to us. And this is symbolised by the provision of food. That God says, I'm going to provide for you a way in which you can have your spiritual souls fed and met and forgiven. And it's symbolised practically through the eating of food and the drinking of wine. Nancy Guthrie commentator she says this to eat the fat and drink sweet wine was a tangible way of partaking of the grace of God his promised provision and there are these continual moments in the story where God's people sit down after adventures after exploits after difficulties they sit down and they eat food and they drink wine and they lean back and they rejoice in the provision of God and what he's done for them And the final provision that we get is God himself coming down in the flesh, in the form of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus, he says to us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So as we choose to sit down with each other and share communion and share lunch and dinners together, as we gather around dining tables, we partake in the provision of God that speaks to us of the provision of God in Jesus Christ, the true bread of life. And we sit back and we rejoice by faith that my sins have not been accounted to me. Because when I read the rest of this book and I read the story of the Bible, I am told of a saviour who is my provision, who is my lamb in my place, who dies in my place for my sin. And he dies, he is buried He goes down into the grave so that my sin may be thrown as far as the east is from the west. That my sin might not be accounted against me. So that I might sit down with you one day, Trinity Church London, and rejoice. Take a breath. Laugh a laugh of forgiveness. Eat some food. Drink some wine. And rejoice in the presence of God. This is the final note. You know that your soul is being revived when there is a growing joy as you read the scriptures and you find the provision of God. So Trinity Church London, may there be preparation, may there be respect, may there be faith, may there be worship, may there be help, may there be weeping and may there be rejoicing and may we be blessed in Jesus' name. Let's bring out the book, church. Let's bring out the book.